Well, Grace Bible Church, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're nearing the end of our study of Philippians. This morning we'll be looking at verses 4 to 7. I'm going to read them for you and then we'll pray together. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's ask for His help one more time. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us to Christ, our Savior. Grant us understanding of your Word, O God. Write its truth upon our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the most recent reports about Americans' mental health paint a very um, disturbing picture. Let me just give you some stats. I know it's easy to turn tune out when you hear stats, but try to stick with them. One in every 24 adults has a serious mental health, uh, mental illness. Depression and anxiety are widespread in our nation. Uh, the number of people treated for depression has tripled over the past few decades. One in ten Americans now take antidepressants. More than 11% of adults report having regular feelings of, of worry, nervousness, anxiety. Roughly 40% of Americans say that they are more anxious this year than last. And the, the United States has actually been called the most anxious nation in the world. Now, keep in mind, we hear those numbers. They're more than numbers. These are, are people who are suffering. The, the pursuit of happiness, which is just enshrined in our DNA as a nation, is, is not going well. And, and you know this, that joy and, and peace often seem so elusive. Like they're, they're just beyond one's reach. Never can really get a hold of them. And Christians aren't immune from this. You know, those statistics I cited include many faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Men and women who love Jesus, people whose ultimate hope is in Him, and yet they suffer with depression and anxiety. And certainly there are at least a few of us here today for whom this is reality. Life is not always sunshine and roses for everyone. And so as I've just read Paul's instructions here to the the church in Philippi, maybe maybe you hear Paul's exhortations and, and perhaps they sound like trite little clichés. You know, uh, be happy. Just look on the bright side. Uh you know the old song, don't worry, be happy, as if just saying that to yourself again and again will make it happen. 
is Paul teaching us here to use the power of positive thinking. If we just tell ourselves enough times that, that we're happy, that we're upbeat, that everything's okay, maybe we'll feel like that. Well, this is something much more profound than just a little self-help slogan. He's pointing us to a, a joy and a peace that are rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's exemplified this, this joy and this peace throughout the letter. This is a, a joy and a peace that are, are deeper, more solid, more substantial than anything a, a self-help formula could ever produce. And in verses 4 to 7, Paul gives a, a series of commands, and they come very quickly, one after another, very brief. I'm going to give you three words that I think capture what he's saying here, and we'll look at each of them. Three words, joyful, gentle, prayerful. Joyful, gentle, prayerful. So first word, joyful. Look at verse 4 again. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats himself for good measure. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, if you've been here with us through our study of Philippians, you know that joy is a theme that's woven throughout the letter. I mean, Paul begins in in chapter 1 saying that he prays for them with joy. He talks about how he labors in the gospel for their joy in Christ. Uh, Paul himself describes how even though he's in prison, even though he's under house arrest, even though his, his future is uncertain, he rejoices in what Christ is doing through his circumstances. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice. And then he repeats that exhortation here again. So you you can... See, this is something Paul wants his readers to get. And notice there in verse 4, Paul doesn't simply say, be happy. No, what does he say? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This is not just put on a smile. (laughs) Friends, joy is possible in this broken and messed up world. And, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, you don't know what I've just had to deal with this past week, or how can joy really be possible when everything in this world just seems so out of whack? Friends, there's joy that's possible for us as Christians because it's, it's rooted in a person. It's rooted in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, not circumstances. Our joy is found in this this risen and exalted Christ. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul told us that this Christ, the, the King of glory, left His heavenly throne and came down into the darkness and the brokenness of this world so that He might lift us might lift us up out of it, so that He might raise us up from the ash heap of our sin and guilt through His death and resurrection so that we might be united to Him, so that we might know Him and commune with Him and and know true joy. You see, circumstances change, don't they? I mean, sometimes they change for the better. Sometimes they change for the worse. But your faithful Savior never changes. His heart in heaven today beats with the same love that He showed when He died for you. 
Our, our mediator at God's right hand sympathizes with your struggles, with your weaknesses, with your sorrows, with your, your struggle against sin. Because He Himself has experienced the same kinds of things. And our Savior is always willing, always ready to help and strengthen you. And Paul says, my Christian friends, rejoice in Him. Rejoice in Him. Now, there's a tension here that I think many of us feel. If I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord always, is it wrong is it is it wrong for me to ever find my joy in something that's not jesus you know you think about it the the belly laugh of a three-year-old child um, coffee with a friend watching an nba basketball game uh, the aroma of sizzling bacon do you ever think, I know I'm supposed to rejoice in Christ, but, but these other things, they, they actually give me pleasure. They give me joy. Am, am I failing to do what Paul says here? Well, I want you to hear what he says somewhere else. 1 Timothy 6.17, there he says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The, these other things, the, the laughter of a child, the, the companionship of a friend, the, the taste of, of well-cooked food, these are gifts from your Heavenly Father to be enjoyed. See, we, we don't want to be some kind of, um, some kind of ascetic that, that takes no notice of the world in which God has placed us in. He's, God's created you with the ability to see and touch and taste and filled His world with, with things to delight your senses. God's gifts point us back to Him. They, they help us delight in Him. C.S. Lewis talked about this in, in one of his books, and he used the picture of, of sunbeams that, that dazzle our eyes. And then we can chase these beams back to their source in the sun. And that's what God's earthly gifts are like. They're, they're shafts of His glory. And when we, when we take delight in them and follow them back to their source, we're delighting in Him. You know, delighting in the presence of a loved one, a, a friend or a family member is a way of delighting in the goodness of the God who put that person in your life. You know, it's certainly possible to rejoice in the gift and not the giver. And that's at the heart of idolatry, isn't it? To worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator. But if, if we view the world the way that old hymn describes it, this is my father's world. If we view all that the Lord has given us and this created world that he's placed us in as, as his good gifts to us through Jesus Christ, it all serves to deepen our joy in him. And so when you hear Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord always, Rejoice in Christ and rejoice in every shaft of glory that points you back to Him. Rejoice in His grace. Rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. Rejoice in the, the promise of eternal life. Rejoice in Christ's promise never to leave you nor forsake you, but also delight in the, the warmth of the sun. 
delight in a, a Sunday afternoon nap. And, and those of you who have moms at home, give your, the mom the delight of a Sunday afternoon nap. Delight in a perfectly grilled steak. They're all tokens of God's beauty and goodness and the pleasures that He takes in giving good gifts to His children. Well, what about when the earthly gifts are taken away? Lament the loss of of the Father's good gifts, but go on rejoicing in a Savior who's given Himself to you. Paul has shown us here in Philippians that Christ is the gift that surpasses all others. He says, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so when the gifts go away, we still have Christ. He's bound us to Himself in covenant love, and we we belong to Him, body and soul, in life and death, and nothing can change that. So the first word that that gets at what Paul's saying here is joyful. Second word, gentle, gentle. Look at verse 5. Paul goes on. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and then let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So Paul's saying here, Christians ought to be known for something. The, the church of Jesus Christ should have a reputation for being reasonable. And that, that Greek word translated reasonableness, is, it's kind of difficult to capture in English. Reasonableness is a, a possible translation. It can mean gentleness, forbearance, graciousness, yielding. It's used in 1 Timothy 3.3 where Paul says that elders in the church must not be violent or quarrelsome, but gentle. Titus 3.2, Paul tells Titus to instruct believers to avoid quarreling and instead be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's the same word there as reasonableness. So I think what Paul's getting at here is, is be known for gentleness. Be known for gentleness. We follow a, a gentle and lowly Savior. And Paul says his, his people ought to reflect that gentleness. It's the, the opposite of, of a quarrelsome, antagonistic, me-first, self-assertive way of relating to others. Now, some people are always looking for a fight, aren't they? You know, they're quick to point out others' flaws, um, always wanting to debate, to argue, to criticize, to condemn. You feel like you have to walk on eggshells around them or else they're gonna, they're gonna train their guns on you and, and you'll feel their wrath. Paul says Christians should have a reputation for gentleness. And really his concern here is our public witness. When he says, let your, your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone, he, he certainly has within the church in mind, but not just among believers, but especially with those outside the church. 
You know, we live in a society that's becoming increasingly more and more secular, and Christians don't occupy a place of public favor like they once did. The church has a a decreasing cultural influence, and, and we feel the pressure, don't we? We don't quite fit in. And we often end up on different sides of, of the issues from our neighbors. And, and there's many things, many concerning things going on in our nation. And what's the temptation? As we, as we look at the world in which we live and, and think of our future in this world, the temptation is to become angry, right? To become argumentative. Maybe always picking a fight. And Paul says, gentleness is what's called for. Now, that doesn't mean squishiness. Being a, a gentle Christian doesn't mean you're a jellyfish and you kind of just uh, take on the mold of whatever situation you're in. We do need to stand for truth in the public square. But we can't be jerks about it. You know, the manner in which we contend for the truth matters just as much as the message. You know, married couples know this. You know, husband and wife are having a, a disagreement. And often, you know, the husband takes on the, the lawyer role. And all of a sudden now, he's in the courtroom arguing his case before the court. And, and, He can be aggressive, you know, condescending, maybe even harsh with his words. And and he may be right in what he's saying, but his wife is thoroughly unpersuaded, not because there's a flaw in the logic, but because of his manner. And friends, as we look out at the world and see so much that that bothers us, so much that is is wrong, rudeness or or combativeness or meanness doesn't commend the gospel. It doesn't commend the gospel of the gentle Savior to others. In fact, it makes others think that that's what Jesus is like, that Jesus is is rude, harsh, condescending, and, and unreasonable. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15 that this ought to be our, our way of engaging. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. So there he's saying, stand for the truth. Give a defense for your hope in Christ. And, but he goes on, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So much of what actually constitutes the public square today is is online. And and it might be good for you as you consider your your presence online, Facebook, um, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Are you known for gentleness? I can tell you social media is not a place that's known for gentleness, but it, but you as as a follower of Christ are you known for gentleness? Can people say, you know what? I I hate their message. I hate what they believe. I don't like it, but I can't fault the messenger. We want to let the the cross offend people, not our behavior. And notice here, Paul gives a motivation. He says, let your gentleness or your reasonableness be known to all. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. And more literally, it's the Lord is near. 
That could mean that he's, he's near in the sense of being present by his Spirit. We think of Jesus' promise at the end of Matthew, I am with you always. So this could mean he's present to help you as you, as you walk through this world, as you face opposition like the Philippians were, that the Lord is present to strengthen you and to cause you to stand. More likely, Paul means Christ is coming soon. He's at hand, like the ESV says. Why would that be motivation for gentleness? I think Paul's saying Christ will come. He will come to vindicate His people, and that means you and I don't need to play the judge right now by using demeaning speech, by resorting to to slander or combativeness. We don't need to do whatever it takes to win the argument because Christ will set things right when He returns. Our responsibility is to be faithful witnesses, representing Christ not just with the right message, but also in the right manner. And if that means losing an argument, because we won't resort to abusive language and slander, then then so be it. We have this confidence. Christ is at hand. He will win in the end. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Paul said earlier in chapter 2. And so Paul says, Be joyful, be gentle, Be gentle. Last word. Third and final word. Prayerful. Prayerful. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are, are wonderful verses. That, that promise in verse 7 is just tremendously precious. But I, I think we often hear these verses in the wrong way. We tend to hear the command about not being anxious like it's coming from a drill sergeant. You know, stop your worrying, you worthless worrier. You, you, you're failing again. You call yourself a Christian. Get your act together. That's the wrong way to hear this. It's not the demand of an angry lawgiver. This is the gentle coaxing of a shepherd who's seeking to lead us into places of, of safety and rest. And so I want to spend a moment trying to reframe this for you because so many of us hear this and we, and it just becomes an even greater burden. The, the command not to be anxious becomes another reason to be anxious because we know we struggle. First, this isn't an absolute prohibition against anxiety. There's a context to what Paul is saying here. Paul's urging them not to be overcome with worry by the things he's been talking to them about. And if you've been here for the study, you know, back in, in chapter 1, Paul talked about his uncertain future. He doesn't know. Is he going to live? Is he going to die? And the Philippians are concerned. He's, he's awaiting trial. He could be executed any day. And, and the, his friends in Philippi are, are concerned about him. They're also facing their own challenges as they experience opposition for their faith. It's causing stress on the church's unity. And Paul's saying, look, friends, don't be anxious about these things. Pray about them. 
trust the Lord in these things. And so there's a context to, to this specific command, but also not all anxiety is sinful. Not all anxiety is sinful. Paul himself said back in chapter 2, verse 20, speaking of Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That verb, concerned, it's the same one here where Paul says, don't be anxious. But in chapter 2, verse 20, it's a, a positive thing, a positive concern. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty five, Paul says, members of Christ's body should show the same care for one another. It's the same word again, translated anxious here in Philippians. Care. It's a, it's a good thing. 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul talks about the, he says that he experiences the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. No indication there in the context that, that this anxiety for the well-being of his Christian friends was wrong. And so we need to be careful here as we we look at this command not to be anxious about anything. We should be careful about taking it as an absolute prohibition without any exceptions. That's too simplistic. And the second thing I want to say is this. We we need to distinguish between, uh, for lack of better terms, what I'll call common anxiety and anxiety disorders. You know what common anxiety is. Most people experience these kinds of things. You're, you're stressed about a deadline at work. Or, or there's a little bit of worry about finances as you think about some uh, bills you need to pay soon. Or that, that adrenaline rush that you experience before you take an exam. And, the, and this kind of anxiety, it's, it's usually short-lived, doesn't dominate your life, doesn't impact your family. That's common anxiety. Anxiety disorders are on a whole different level. This is, is crippling anxiety. Uh, it often keeps people from doing regular tasks. It's the... it's. This kind of anxiety is not simply a matter of somebody that's just thinking wrongly or or is a little stressed. This is a complex anxiety. There there are spiritual factors at play. There's there's biological factors at play. There's there's tra- often trauma that impacts mind and body. None of this cancels a person's responsibility to fight anxiety, but but it does mean it's far from easy to do. There's no simple fix. This is a a road of of suffering they have to travel. And just to be honest and and transparent for a moment, I struggle with anxiety. I have my my entire adult life, uh, probably also as a child too, my parents have told me they suspected I did. Um, and I don't mean the kind of common anxiety I just talked about. I, I mean the kind of life-impacting anxiety I mentioned. I've had panic attacks. Sometimes I can't think straight for periods of time. It's like there's this blizzard raging in my head. And you know, anxiety is strange. There are um, things that you worry about that might not even phase me, might not even bother me one bit. 
And then you might hear about the kinds of things I worry about and say, man, what is wrong with you? (laughs) And I'll tell you, I ask myself that question all the time. And here's the answer I've arrived at. I'm a person who's broken. I told myself not to do this. I'm a person who's broken in mind and body, but I'm being made whole again by Jesus Christ. Just what you want to do on Mother's Day, right? Listen to the preacher blubber. So whether you're a sufferer like like me, or you want to help those who suffer with anxiety, we need to understand what Paul's doing here. And it's a beautiful thing. He's not condemning Christians for being anxious. He's not saying you just need to trust God more. You just need to have more faith. Come on, get it together. Don't you realize these things aren't even a big deal? Friends, that is so unhelpful to people that struggle with anxiety. The, the things they're worried about might not be a big deal for you, but, but they are for the person who's struggling. And Paul is not, not trying to shame his readers here because they're weak in faith. He's, he's holding out comfort and hope. He's saying, look friends, anxiety doesn't need to define your existence. Anxiety is an opportunity for you to experience your identity as a child of God. He's, he's saying here, look, the anxious person feels isolated. The anxious person feels helpless, like they're trapped in a, in a jail cell with, with no windows, no doors, no way out. And Paul says, my anxious friends, you're not alone. Your Father in heaven sees, He knows, He cares. His throne room, the door to His throne room is is wide open to you. Come, come and bring your requests. Open your heart to Him. Unburden yourself before this Father who loves you and cares for you. Don't, Don't hide. You're not alone. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He's not unconcerned. He, he doesn't mock your fears. And that's what the anxious person is, is often feeling, that, that God cannot understand. And he thinks I'm just a wimp because I'm struggling with this. And Paul says, come. Let your voice be heard, even if it's just groaning. That's the confidence and freedom we have as children of God. And there's a promise here. Notice, Paul says, don't be anxious. Bring your requests. And then this glorious promise, verse 7, God's peace will guard your hearts and minds. It's military language. Like, like a garrison of troops surrounding your heart and mind, protecting your innermost self from just utter despair. Paul says here it's a, a peace that transcends human understanding. 
In other words, this is not. Well, you found out more information about the situation, and now you realize you don't really need to be so concerned about it. This isn't. Well, I figured it out, so I can be calm now. This is a a supernatural work of God by His Spirit, bringing the the peace that is ours in Christ, the peace that has been accomplished by Christ to to bear on our weakness and frailty. A few days after our youngest son was born, he was diagnosed with a hole in his heart, and it was just a a chaotic time, just a, a whirlwind of of tests and being in the hospital and and so many things, so much information coming our way. It was it was disorienting, and um, I've just told you my my proclivity is not toward peace, and yet during those days we spent in the NICU. I think I had a little taste of this peace that surpasses all understanding. I know I certainly didn't conjure it up, but there was just a a rest, knowing that even my little newborn son is in my father's hands, and I can trust him. And so Paul's saying, "Look, friends, turn to your heavenly Father." Go to the place where there's peace. Go to the one who gives peace. And let me say, this isn't just a, a simplistic formula. This isn't, you know, here's three little tips for having a stress-free life. As if it's, you know, I'm, I'm worried, I pray, it all goes away, life is great. Prayer is not a formula. It's a practice to cultivate. It's a, it's a way of life where we're we're entrusting ourselves to the God who bears our burdens. We're learning to trust our our Father's loving heart. It's not just a, a transaction. I need something. No, it's it's relationship, communion with the living God. And God doesn't promise instant relief from anxious feelings. That's another way I think we often mishandle these verses. In fact, God never promises us total tranquility in mind or body in this life. Peace and and fear or peace and distress coexist side by side on this side of glory. It's the already not yet nature of the Christian life. We're, we're already... In Christ, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We, our sins are forgiven. We, um, we've been adopted into God's family. The indwelling Holy Spirit bears witness to us that we are God's children. But, but Christ's saving work has not yet been consummated. And Paul says at the end of chapter three that we're awaiting a savior. That, that's, a, a headline that could go over the entirety of our lives, awaiting the Savior who will come and put everything right. And until that day, Romans 8.23 says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And so we have this wonderful promise, but it's not instant relief. In fact, instead, God promises to sustain us in the midst 
of the struggle. He enables the anxious person to to keep walking by faith. And I think Paul gives us a glimpse of what this being guarded by God's peace looks like in 2 Corinthians 4. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, speaking of his own experience, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Friends, this is the hope and the assurance we have in Christ. As, as frail and sinful and broken and beaten up as we are, He will preserve us. Our faithful saviors come to, to rescue, to restore, to, to make us whole again. And he's our good shepherd even now leading us to these, these places of rest and refreshment in the, in the midst of our struggles. I'll close with the promises he's made to us. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. The Lord be with you, friends. Let's pray. Our God and Father, many of us feel like we're about to be crushed or destroyed. But we put our hope and trust in You. Your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. O God, would You guard us with Your peace? Would You protect and preserve us as we walk through this barren and weary land with the confidence and the assurance that Christ goes with us. Would you help us to rejoice in Christ our Savior? It's in His name we pray. Amen.